Hello and welcome to this week's Acting Out podcast. Two thousand and eighteen marked the twenty-fifth anniversary of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Ireland. And to celebrate this, Acting Out commissioned three writers to write four monologues on the theme. These were a big success with our audience, and as a result, we decided to record them for broadcast in our podcast. And we'll be featuring one each week for the next few weeks. The first of these is I Know What You Are by Sean Denyer. So you're going to go for it, he said. We were in the queue at the canteen at the time and I was trying to decide between the cotton chips, which looked a bit greasy, or a healthy chicken salad. Sure, why wouldn't I? Nothing to lose. Cotton chips, please. Really? He said. What does Derek think? I mean, is there any point? You know, what with... Is there any point... This was 1971, you see. And he was talking about the interviews for assistant principal officer in the civil service. He being Charlie Higgins. A skinny piece of human snark with bad breath and the beginnings of a bad comb-over. I wasn't overly fond of him. There were very few women at that grade. And this is hard to believe now. But at that time, you see, if you were a woman... You had to resign your position in the public service if you got married. You had to resign. Resign. Derek, whose opinion on the matter seemed more important to Charlie than mine, of course, was my boyfriend. Charlie knew we'd been seeing each other for a few years, so assumed, like most people did, you know, that marriage was on the cards. Because, of course, marriage had to be the ultimate prize of every woman now, didn't it? The only option that was viable in a country that didn't even allow women to claim unemployment benefit. As sure, you'd have a husband or a father to support you now, wouldn't you? After college, I joined the civil service, which at the time was very hard to get into. I loved my job. And I was good at it. No, I was great at it. Now I know that sounds like I had notions that I was guilty of the worst possible Irish sin of being above myself. But it was just a fact. I wanted to run a government department one day. I knew I could. But Charlie was wrong about Derek. Derek wasn't my boyfriend. He was my beard. I'd never really been into boys. Never kiss one. Never wanted to. I knew I was attracted to girls from the age of 15... I didn't really have words for it then. But how could I have done? There were no role models at all. Lesbians were invisible. But for some reason, I didn't ever think there was something wrong with me. I went to college and sort of stumbled upon others who felt the same. You meet one and one leads to another and another. My beard, Derek, was a gay man who also worked in the civil service. We've been friends since UCD. He'd a lovely boyfriend called Michael, who was a graphic designer. 
He'd known him since college and they shared a flat in Ranelagh. Now, if he'd any sense about you at all, you would have worked it out. But in those days, it was all about the optics. People didn't want to have to think about the possibility that they were homosexuals. So if he gave them an out from having to, they took it gratefully. It wasn't as if it was hard either, pretending. Derek and I were the best of mates. So we spent a lot of time together. And when I met Karen, well, then it was even easier. What was more natural now than two couples going on a double date? Except in reality, the men were not dating the women or vice versa. You see, to survive at that time as a gay woman, you had to have a strategy. If you'd asked most people then whether they knew any lesbians... Almost everyone would say no, or Sure, Ireland doesn't have any of them. They all go to England. England, of course, being the natural home for anything Ireland didn't want to have to contemplate. And to some extent they were right. There was mass emigration of gay people out of Ireland. I mean, why wouldn't you, if you could? Lots of my lesbian friends left. Not only because they couldn't be themselves as a gay woman, but because they couldn't be themselves as a woman full stop. But I didn't want to have to leave. And if having to do a bit of acting now and then was the price, I was prepared to pay it. It was trickier for Karen. She was a teacher in a primary school. She'd been a nun before that. (laughs) Just for a couple of years, mind. She told me this on our first date. Well, I'm not sure it was a date, exactly, to be honest. I wasn't 100% sure she batted for my team. I mean, I was 90% sure, but I'd made some terrible mistakes about that in the past. I tended to assume every woman who wore no makeup was a lesbian. I'm sorry, I just did. And if they'd bad hair as well, (laughs) I'm just joking. I knew loads of lesbians back then with lovely hair. She lied. I'd first met her in a local library which in those days was a kind of lesbian cruising equivalent to the Phoenix Park for gay men. You think I'm joking? But I had quite a few dates arising from a flirtation over the merits of sense and sensibility, or the latest Edna O'Brien. Of course, it was hard to be completely sure as well. Asking another woman out to meet for coffee is hardly seen as deviant, is it? Sure, that's all we did. Get married, clean the house, have kids, meet other women friends for coffee. I first noticed Karen when she was leafing through a collection of Elizabeth Bishop's completed poems. Bishop being one of the few published lesers we all knew about. I took this to be a very positive sign. <laughs> she was very petite, with a Mia Farrow urchin cut, dressed all in black, and I thought she was the absolute epitome of cool. Unlike me, who had no sense of style at all dressed in usual A-line skirt and floral blouse with huge red chrysanthemums. Big flowers on blouses was my personal fashion statement. I was sadly lacking any kind of sartorial sense in those days. Anyway, I sidled up to her and I said something inane about Bishop, to which she said something very intelligent and considered, and I felt like a bit of a fool and thought I'd banjax the whole thing when she said, maybe we can talk more about books we like over coffee. Yeah, if you'd like. When, she said. Now is good, I said. Oh, like right now, 
she said. And I thought with all my overzealous eagerness I'd blown it for the second time. You're probably too busy. We can do it another time, no bother. Oh no. Now is great, she said. Sure, there's no time like the present. She told me about leaving the convent and how difficult it was. How much she loved the community. But she increasingly had doubt of the whole God thing. Bit of a problem if you're a nun, that. And yes, of course, later. I couldn't resist asking her if it was true that the convent was a hotbed of lesbianism. She said she thought about 50% were probably dykes. 50%, I said. As little as that. At the time, of course, there was absolutely no way you could be out as a teacher. But anyway, with a few notable exceptions, none of us were out. Not really, except to other lesbians. It carried too much risk. And of course, loads of lesbians were married to men. There were very few outlets at the time. It was like a secret underground network. Even in college. You got very expert at living two lives. One at work or with your family. Another with your friends. After a year, Karen and I moved in together. We got a flat in the same building as Derek and Michael, with Michael becoming Karen's boyfriend. In a way, it was a perfect arrangement. I mean, I'm sure there were some people who worked it out. How could they not have? But you know, there were less than you'd think. There's none so blind as those who cannot see. It was a week before the assistant principal interview, and I was just going through my mail, of which there was a ton, when I opened something from the internal mail. I knew it was from someone inside the building, because it was one of those envelopes where there's lots of lines in front of it, and you just scribble out the person before, and then you write who you want to send it to. We got loads of them every day, so I opened it without a thought. But on it was just one sentence, typed, I know what you are. That was it. I know what you are. I was stunned. I mean, I knew what they were getting at. I'm no fool. But without realising it, I started to cry. You all right, Mara? Barry said. We just started sharing an office, and he was a decent man, older, fanatical about the GAA. Yeah, fine. Just a bit tired, I think. Well, there's something nasty going round. Maybe you've got that. Maybe go home. I'll tell David. David was our boss, a real die-hard socialist. He'd always been very encouraging to me. I think he worked out where my romantic interests lay. Just some things, he said. But of course, we never discussed it. When I told Karen, she was incensed. Who did it? What fuckface did that to you? I'll chop off his balls when I find out. I'll nail his penis to the floor. You don't know that it's a man. Oh, yes, I do. It always is, she said. The next day, I looked again at the envelope. The last person to receive it on the list was scribbled out completely. The person before that was Brian from Finance, who I knew slightly. So I rang him straight away. Hi, Brian. Just wanted to check something. 
I got an internal mail I need to reply to, but the sender isn't clear. But you were the one before on the list. So, do you remember who you might have sent it to? Jesus, you must be joking, Moira. I send dozens of those out each day. There'd be no way I could be sure. I had to go through the day's mail. And my heart was thumping as I did. And sure enough, near the bottom of the pile was another internal mail. Only I was the first name on the list this time. Lesbians shouldn't be taking men's jobs. That's all it said. I wasn't upset this time. I was bloody angry. Look, love, Karen said. They're obviously trying to put you off going for that promotion. That's what it's about. Some lily-livered, sad sack of man trying to bully you. You need to tell David. I can't, I said. At best, it's a don't ask, don't tell attitude in there. I'm sure David knows and doesn't care. But if I kick up a fuss, that's me done for. They won't sack me, but I'll be in the same grade for the rest of my life. That's how they punish people. I thought you'd have more balls, she said. (laughs) Well, I don't see you coming out any time at work soon. No, because I really could be sacked. In education, it's not so much a don't ask, don't tell, as it's a it does not exist. And until people who can come out do, it's going to be impossible for the rest of us. Can't you see that? We spent the evening in silence. I talked to Derek. Fuck, that's awful, he sympathised. What are you going to do? I'm thinking of withdrawing from the competition, I said. Oh no, you are fucking not doing that. Don't you dare. If we don't stand up to this, we're done for. Easy for you to say, I said. Planning to bring your boyfriend to the next Christmas party, are you? Going to invite your boss to yours and Michael's next house party? No? Thought not? No, but you are not actually illegal, are you? Like we are. We are criminals still under the law. Only because the state can't contemplate woman as a sexual being at all. Or even as a human being half the time. We're not important enough to be made into criminals. It's like we don't exist. I was mad with Derek and Karen, mostly because they were, of course, right. I decided to take action. The next day, I cleared a space on my desk. I was shaking as I did it. And I took out a small picture of Karen out of my bag and put it on my desk. It was a terrible photo. You couldn't see her face clearly. Karen was petrified one of the kids she thought parents might work at the department. Is that your sister? Barry said when he noticed the photo. There was a silence so pregnant that it was in need of a C-section. No, it's my... It's my... It's my partner. It's my partner, Karen. Then he said, 
She looks nice. Which was the kindest thing anyone had ever said to me. As much because the photo was so fuzzy, she could have been a two-headed alien for all he knew. She is. She's brilliant, I said. And before I could help myself, I was given GAA Barry, of all people, a big hug and telling him about the hate mail. Oh, that's not right. That's shocking, Maura. I hate a coward. Listen, love, let me sort this. Not that you couldn't, of course, but I can have a quiet word with David. Oh, and my daughter, you know, Laura, that lives in London. Her partner's called Melanie. You know, your allies can come from the most unexpected places. I'd pigeonhole Barry as a nice, but probably very traditional Catholic middle-aged man, when in fact he was a bloody wonderful person, fairly radiating human kindness, and with a lesbian daughter to boot. People are always wrong-footing you, aren't they? The next day, though, there was another note. Flaunting it now, are you? You should be ashamed, you dirty big dyke. That did it. I wasn't going to put up with that. Barry was away at a meeting and maybe if he'd been there I wouldn't have done what I did. Who knows? I took the note and underneath the one line it contained wrote Today I received this internal mail from someone who works in this department. This is the third one I've received in as many days. All unsigned. They are all designed to intimidate me and shame me and make me out to be less. To make me seem like a freak. To make me seem not human. If the person that wrote it would like to discuss the challenges of being a lesbian. For those of you who don't know, a lesbian is simply a woman who has a loving relationship with another woman. In homophobic culture, then please contact me on extension 241 at any time. Because yes, I am a lesbian. And though it's no one's business who I love, it does not affect in any way my ability to do my job. It is something about which I am not ashamed. You have friends, aunts, sisters, and yes, even mothers who are also lesbians but who are too afraid to tell you because they fear getting cowardly and hateful messages like this one. But I'm not afraid anymore. I am proud. Maura Higgins. I pinned it to the staff notice board and held my breath. By lunchtime, someone had started a petition in support of what I said, and was asking for action by senior management. By the time I left in the evening, 200 people had signed it. There was a constant stream of colleagues dropping by my office too, to show support, including two women who said they too were batting for my team. A memo went round the very next day from the top, warning staff of severe consequences for bullying or intimidation of any kind towards other staff. Of course... Lots of my colleagues, probably the majority, hadn't signed the petition. I was under no illusion that my gesture alone had cured the civil service of homophobia. But it was a step. And it was another thing to celebrate. 
along with my elevation to assistant principal, of course. I did sometimes still wonder which gobshite had done it. They never did flush them out. And for a while, I'd look at people as they pass me in the corridor or at meetings, looking for signs. But therein lies the way to madness. And when I moved apartments, I rarely thought about it. Though I never completely forgot it either. The strange thing for me was that having outed myself, as it were, I stopped worrying about who knew. I'm sure some of them gossiped about me, but I didn't care. Visibility gave me a kind of power. In a weird way, coming out made me... untouchable. It's like nobody dare say anything bad. I told my parents shortly after about Karen. They were, it's fair to say, more than slightly shocked. My mum did a lot of wailing, and things were difficult for a while with them, although we always kept up contact. But when the kids came along, well... Everything changed for the better. They were intoxicated by their grandchildren. Mam even came to live with us after Dad died and stunned me on her 80th birthday by saying, You know what, Maura? I think that I'm slightly bisexual. And whenever Laura and Melanie were over, Barry'd invite us round. They were such a lovely family. We'd bring our kids over to play with theirs. Barry and his wife became like a third set of grandparents. I don't know this yet, but we will lose Derek's partner Michael to AIDS in the 1980s. So he will die as he lived, still a criminal in the eyes of the state. Derek, who will be completely devastated by his loss, will move to London, where he'll eventually meet a ridiculously handsome younger guy called Ian, who's big into daddies, and finally start to live again. Karen will study for a PhD in early years education, and become a professor at DIT. She will become heavily involved in LGBT and women's politics and will not rest until the Eighth Amendment is well and truly buried. And though I can't possibly even imagine it now, in 2016, on a gorgeous spring day in March, one of those that seems to be shouting, Summer is here! And having retired as Secretary-General of the Department of Social Protection, I will, age 73, holding my lovely Karen's hand, surrounded by my kids and grandkids, finally get to say, I do. You have been listening to I Know What You Are by Sean Denyer. Moira was played by Leslie Ann Riley, and the music featured in the podcast was In Your Eyes by Eaton. You've been listening to the Acting Out podcast. If you'd like to know more about what we're doing, you can follow us on Twitter at Acting Out Group, or on our Facebook page, or go to our website, www actingoutgroup.com Music for the podcast was by Eden and the show was produced by Sean Denyer.